Whether you're here at Legacy or at Sloan Creek or Woodbridge, Richardson, and Espanol watching online, I am so excited to be with you today. This week, we're continuing our series, Things That Keep You Up at Night. And if you've missed any of the past weeks, I encourage you to go out and go and check them out online because they've been powerful. So when my friends found out that I was speaking in this series, they would ask me, hey, what's your topic? So I told them, oh, I'm talking about shame. And universally, their response was, oh, right? Because shame carries with it these emotions or experiences or memories, and it feels heavy and uncomfortable. Wouldn't it be great if shame felt warm and fuzzy? What if whenever we experience shame or we witness one another's shame, it felt like this? Huh? ¿Quién de los dos fue? ¿Quién hizo esto? Quiero saber. Mira cómo me dejaron la plantilla. ¿Quién fue? ¿Eh? All right, well, apparently while I was out, somebody got into the kitty cat treats. Denver, did you do this? Denver, was this you? Denver, you won't look at me. Did you? What? Denver, did you do this? Cooper, did you eat all of your treats? Cooper? Come here. Hey, you have a good day? Come here, you have a good day? Did you have a good day? Come here, Missy. Did you have a good day? Huh? Did you have a good day? Daddy loves you. You have a good day? But who tore my pants up, though? Oh, y'all don't want to talk about that? Y'all don't want to talk about that? If that video doesn't make you say, oh, then you might be a little bit dead inside. <laughs> Because those dogs are so adorable, and you can't get mad at them. And they look so cute, and their shame almost makes me love them a little bit more. Wouldn't it be awesome if our shame felt as cute and endearing as those dogs? But we know that in reality, guilt and shame feels embarrassing and condemning and isolating. So what do we do with the shame that we're experiencing? Today we're going to look at the book of Mark to see Jesus' response to shame. And if you've been attending church for a while, this story might be familiar to you. We're in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I grew up in the church, and so I've read and heard this story countless times. And so maybe because, because of repetition, it feels like, yeah, okay, these men climbed onto the roof and dug a hole and lowered the man to Jesus. And so it seems kind of ho-hum. But I want us to just pause here for a second and think about the chaos of this situation. I don't think this was normal at all, and I think somebody coming through the roof to enter a house would have been crazy, and it might have felt more like this. <laughs> oh my God, what is that? The fire shooting at us! 
trying to Maybe it wasn't quite that dramatic, but it wasn't just an ordinary event. And it's easy to forget that this is someone's actual house. And people during Jesus' time would have been just as shocked as you or I to see somebody entering the house through the roof. Bible scholars think that maybe this was Apostle Peter's house, and Mark is the only one that gives us this much detail about the story. So in comparison, this is how the story is told in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew is focused on the miracle, but Mark gives us a lot more information. And the reason for this could be that Mark had a very close relationship with Apostle Peter. And if this happened at Apostle Peter's house, and he's telling Mark this story, it makes sense that he would give us all this contextual detail. Because if somebody comes to the roof of my house unexpectedly, I'm going to tell you every single thing about that story. So with this chaotic scene in mind, the friends have just lowered the paralytic through the roof. Let's go back to the passage of Mark and look at Jesus' response. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This seems like an odd response from Jesus. Because if the people are going to go through all this trouble to climb up onto the roof and haul their friend up there and dig a hole and then lower him to Jesus, it makes sense that they're hoping for dramatic healing. Word was already out about Jesus performing miracles, and so it's clear what the paralytic and his friends are expecting. There are several other instances in Scripture where, Jesus, where people come to Jesus and they need healing, and Jesus responds with healing. Jesus heals a leper, he heals a deaf man, he heals blind men. So it's not like every time Jesus is confronted with someone who needs healing that he says, son, your sons are forgiven. So why is that the first thing that Jesus says here? I think Jesus is doing two things. One, he truly sees the paralyzed man. And two, he sees the man's deepest and most important need. First, Jesus sees a paralytic for who he really is. Verse 5 tells us that he looks at the paralytic and he calls him son. Let's not miss the significance of Jesus addressing the man as son here. It's unclear exactly how this man became paralyzed. But what we know is that culturally during that time, Jews associated suffering with sin. So the entire community would have believed that this man sinned or maybe his parents sinned. But someone did something to bring this illness upon the man. They would have thought that he deserved this suffering because of someone's bad choice. The paralytic and his family would have been looked down upon, maybe ostracized, seen as unclean, and they would have definitely been viewed as less than. So after years of being treated this way by his community, this paralyzed man is brought before Jesus. While Jesus is surrounded by leaders and Pharisees, and the leaders and Pharisees for sure would have looked down on the paralytic. So it's in front of this group that Jesus' tender response to the paralytic is to call him son, to speak value and worth over him. Jesus views the man with fatherly compassion, and with a father's affection, he is essentially calling the man my child. 
And then Jesus' next words are, your sins are forgiven. This response seems out of place because a man clearly needs healing. That's why his friends brought him to Jesus. But Jesus ignores that to address a completely different issue. So why doesn't Jesus address the paralysis right away? I think it's because Jesus sees the man's deepest and most important need. What the paralytic needs isn't physical healing. What he needs most is a right relationship with Jesus. Their paralyzed man is completely dependent on other people. He has to be carried everywhere. He can't work, so he probably feels like a burden to his family. Or maybe he has to beg just to survive. So this man is thinking, if my friends can just get me to Jesus, then I can be healed. Healing will solve all of my problems. Healing will allow me to work. It'll give me independence. This is the answer. Healing will make everything in my life right. This is it. This is the most important thing. I get this about the paralytic. Because how many times in my life have I thought, God, if you would just answer this prayer in this particular way, this would solve all of my problems. I figured out the answer to all of my issues. And so, God, could you just give me this? Fill in the blank. This relationship, this job, this possession. But what Jesus is saying here is that no physical condition, no human relationship, no possession, no job is the answer to our problems. Nothing is more important than a right relationship with Jesus. Because that relationship allows us to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. The paralytic and his friends and probably everyone in that house is focused on physical healing. But Jesus isn't just thinking about physical healing. He's thinking about wholeness. Jesus knows that given the paralytic's physical condition and with the culture at that time, the paralytic would feel like he's broken and unwanted and unloved. So the heart of the man's issue isn't paralysis. It's his shame. Arthur John Townsend describes shame like this. Shame is the feeling that a part of us is so defective that we cannot be accepted or loved. It is that mistake, attitude, behavior, failure, or difficult season in the past that we judge ourselves for. We are convinced that if others knew about it, they would judge us or leave us. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is, hey, let's not waste time. Let's not deal with the symptoms of your problem. Let's go to the source. In so many ways, I feel like the paralyzed man's story is my story. Honestly, I haven't lived my life thinking shame was that big of an issue for me. It's not like shame is at the forefront of my mind. Because generally what I'm thinking about is what's the next thing I want to achieve? What's the next goal? But there has always been for me this kind of underlying feeling that I was missing something that I was less than. But I didn't want to acknowledge that. Because who wants to think that way of themselves? So I would push that aside and try to figure out what was the thing that would make me feel whole? So when I was younger, I thought, well, if I could just get married, then I would feel complete. And then I got married. And then it became, well, if I could get a particular educational degree, and then if we could have kids, if we could live in a house, if I could get a particular job, and all the while this is happening, there's still this gnawing feeling that there's something wrong with my life or maybe with me. I think when we're living with shame and 
have this sense of feeling like something's wrong with us, an easy way to cover this up is through achievement. Sometimes there's a tangible goal, but other times it just feels like winning at life. And I don't mean that I feel like I have to be number one at everything. I just want to know, how does my life stack up to somebody else's? And the easiest way to play that comparison game and check, up how, my, and check how my life measures against someone else's is through social media, right? Because social media is all about someone's highlight reel. And so in my sin and brokenness, I just want my life to be the string of highlights, the string of winning moments. Please don't hear me say that all of social media is bad. I'm still on Facebook and Instagram today. I'm just saying that for a long time, I was on social media without realizing how it was impacting me. And because I was ignorant of that, I was interacting with it in an unhealthy way. So for me, the tipping point came about a year ago. So I'm on Facebook to see how my everyday life compares with somebody else's highlight reel. And we all know that it never does. So I'm looking at something that someone else posted, and I'm comparing, and I'm feeling jealous. And then I turn to Peter, my husband, and I explain what I'm feeling, and then I say, man, I'm sick of feeling this way. I'm tired of being jealous all the time. I need to talk to someone about this. And he kind of casually says, oh, you should talk to Lee. Lee Tran is a licensed therapist, and he's part of our staff, and his counseling practice is affiliated with our church. So I knew that he was someone that loves Jesus and that I could trust him. So I made an appointment to see him, and I went into that appointment fully expecting to talk about the sin of jealousy in comparison. I thought we were going to talk about the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. I thought he was going to tell me I need to confess my sins and maybe find an accountability partner and help me put some structure to that plan. So I explained to Lee what prompted me to come in and see him, and again, I'm fully prepared to talk about how to stop being jealous. But instead, Lee starts to ask me about my family and my childhood, and he immediately begins to uncover that my biggest issue isn't jealousy, it's the feeling of shame. It wasn't just that I was jealous, but knowing that jealousy in comparison had been a repeated pattern for my entire life, I was deeply ashamed about that. Because I'm a Christ follower, I'm not supposed to feel jealous. I'm supposed to love everyone and celebrate their wins and be in community. But I knew that deep down, I had some dark, sinful thoughts. And that made me feel like a fraud. And then, that made me feel ashamed. And then that shame fed into some other lies I was believing. That ultimately, I was unworthy and unlovable. I think it was only 25 or 30 minutes into the session where Lee's bringing all this to light, and I was completely shocked. I didn't even know that all of this was lurking below the surface. And I was seriously so caught off guard that I'm ugly crying, but at one point I turned to Lee, and I was like, what is happening right now? Because I had no idea of how much I had not processed, how many unhealthy thought patterns I had in my life. And he said, yeah. We get so used to the dysfunction that we don't even realize it's there. It just becomes white noise. So that was a start to about a year of counseling. And not because I was having some kind of mental breakdown. There was no crisis that triggered this, no catastrophic issue. It was just me realizing that I had been stuck in a particular pattern for years, and I didn't know how to get unstuck. I couldn't see any way out of it. And counseling helped me to process some key points in my life, and it helped me get unstuck. 
Before counseling, I was more focused on behavior modification. How do I stop comparing? How do I stop being jealous? How do I stop using food to medicate? And whatever tactics I used would be effective for a little while, and I'd make a little bit of progress. But then I'd find myself falling back into old patterns, and then that just made me feel more guilty and ashamed. And then it was just this never-ending cycle. What my counselor helped me to understand is, yeah, jealousy and anger, being hypercritical of myself, all of those are bad things, and we need to address those. But those are all just symptoms of a deeper problem. So let's tackle the source of the problem first. The source of my issues was the lies that I believed, that my worth is based on my performance. And so when I didn't meet expectations, I felt unlovable. And then when I did reach goals, it was always on to the next one because I had to keep earning love and approval. And if people knew how messed up I really was on the inside, they would be horrified. So I had to work hard to cover all the ugly and broken parts of me. Counseling helped me to realize that I was never going to be able to work hard enough to prove my worth. That what I needed to do was trust Jesus' love and forgiveness and grace for me. And trust that his love, forgiveness, and grace could cover my deepest pains. That it could cover my guilt and my shame. God knows how futile and hopeless our lives would be without his grace. So he provides a way for us. Let's look at the text again. After Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees and leaders in the house, they get really angry because they're thinking only God can forgive sins, and they're refusing to believe that Jesus has the right to do this. Jesus knows what the leaders are thinking, so he responds in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus is saying, Just so you know that I'm the Son of God, that I can forgive sins, that I can heal, that you can trust me, I'll show you the authority that I have. And he heals a paralytic. Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the Son of God. He does have the power to heal. He does have the power to conquer death and to forgive our sins. And he just invites us into relationship with him. Not because we've done something to earn it, but simply because this is the heart of the Father. To extend love and mercy and grace to us. And he offers us freedom from the prison of guilt and shame. Maybe you can relate to my story And you're at a point in your life where you feel like, I'm tired of feeling jealous, tired of overeating, tired of spending beyond my means, tired of not being able to control my temper, I'm tired of having this addiction, I'm tired of having the same fights over and over again with my spouse, I'm tired of this string of broken relationships, I'm tired of feeling like I don't have enough, that I'm not enough. What do we do with these feelings? First, Maybe you need to get into a relationship with Jesus. At every campus, we'll have people up front after service that you can talk to about what that looks like to be in relationship with Jesus. Or if you're online, we have moderators who will chat and pray with you. 
Maybe you're struggling because you've been trying to figure all of this out on your own. We can help you get connected to life groups. You can stop by any of the new guest areas, and the host there will help you take the next steps. But maybe you kind of already know what your problem is, and you just need some more focused help. When you walked in at your campus, you were handed a flyer that looks like this, and it lists all the services that we offer through our pastoral care ministry. Or you can check it out online under the Care tab on our website. We offer renew groups for both students and adults. We have divorce care. Or maybe you've experienced an abortion. You're carrying a lot of shame and emotional pain related to that. We have a forgiven and set free group. Or if you feel like you need a little bit more help processing your thoughts and feelings, you can make an appointment to see a counselor through our church. I think one of the biggest obstacles to counseling is just that first step, knowing where to start or how to find a counselor that you can trust. And we want to help you with this. So that first assessment is free. And we'll connect you to resources or counselors that are aligned to what we believe about Scripture and our church's DNA. Lee, my counselor, would say that counseling is not the magic bullet. It's not the be-all, end-all to all of our problems. If we think about the functions and the gifts of the body of Christ, counselors are just one part. Counseling works in conjunction with accountability and community and the larger church body. Lee would often remind me that I needed to talk to other people about what I was learning and processing in counseling. Because counseling was just happening for one hour a week within those four walls. But I needed to include other people in my journey so that what I was learning would really stick. But even more importantly, secrecy and hiding are the best friends of shame. So getting shame out in the open through talking to a counselor or to a friend or to a spouse or pastor, it helps us to see and believe truth. So the more I shared with Peter and a, and a few trusted friends, the more it helped me to internalize and practice what I was learning in counseling. And it also deepened my relationships because I didn't feel isolated anymore. I didn't feel like a fraud. Counseling doesn't fix all of our problems. I'm in a much better place now than I was a year ago, but I still struggle with comparison and shame because I'm still broken. I'm still a sinner. I still have the same triggers. I just know how to respond better to them now. But even with all the tools and all the work that I've done this past year, I fully expect to be in counseling again because something else will happen and I'll feel stuck again. And now I know the clarity and healing counseling provides so why wouldn't I want to utilize that resource? At the heart of my counseling sessions was me wrestling with the ideas of how I view myself and how I view God. And even though I had been a Christ follower for over 34 years at that point, I wasn't fully trusting his forgiveness and his grace and his love for me. But this is the truth that the story of the paralytic reminds us of today. This is the heart of the Father that we are truly seen and known and called sons and daughters because we are so deeply loved, because God knew that there was never a way that we would be able to be good enough on our own, he responds with unimaginable grace and sends his son to die for us. And our part is that we enter into a relationship with Jesus. We receive forgiveness and grace because ultimately that leads us to freedom freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation.
So I want to invite the bands at all the campuses to come up and close out our service by leading us in worship and create some space for us to think about the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And I want to encourage you to think about your own answers to these questions. Do you see yourself the way Jesus sees you? Do you believe that you are deeply loved by him? Do you trust his forgiveness and grace? And are you living free from guilt and shame and condemnation? Let me pray for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this promise and this truth. Thank you for the love and grace and forgiveness you offer to us. We don't understand this kind of love, but we want to receive it today. And God, for those of us who need healing, to be free from the prison of shame, would you remind us of how you view us, that you call us sons and daughters, that we are forgiven, and that we are deeply loved by you. In your son's name we pray.